Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is none other than Coach Dan Pfaff. Where do we even begin with Dan's bio? The man is just a legend within the track and field and sports performance world. Dan has coached multiple Olympic world and national medalists. In fact, he's coached nine Olympic medalists and nine world championship medalists. Some of Coach Fast's most notable athletes have been athletes such as Donovan Bailey, Bernie Sherman, and of course, Greg Rutherford, who he's been working with over the last number of years. Dan is currently the head coach at Altus in Phoenix, Arizona in the USA. Previously, Dan was one of the head coaches for Team GB for the London 2012 Olympics. On this episode, Dan and I discussed many topics, including Dan's background and his influences, the good and not so good things that Dan sees within the entire sports performance profession, Dan's training philosophy, where we discussed assessment, program design, organization of the training process, the genesis of Dan's three-day rollover, and the importance of the micro-cycle setup. Dan also gives us his take on the pedagogy of coaching. Dan also gives his top advice and resources to all the listeners, and much, much more. This was an absolutely amazing episode, guys, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Okay, Coach Dan Fath, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you come on to my podcast. I really, really appreciate you making the time. Um, just for anybody, I suppose, who might be too familiar with who you are, which I would imagine, Dan, would be nobody listening to this, but maybe just give us a, a background and um, we'll start there. All right, well... <clears throat> Uh, I grew up in a very rural area in the uh, 60s, uh, early 70s, um, kind of <clears throat> in an era where you played whatever sport was in season. So I played them all, American football, wrestling, basketball, ice hockey, baseball, track and field. Um, didn't really have great coaching, had teachers that meant well but not a whole lot of instruction, um, not a lot of rules, you know. A lot of times you kind of made it up as you went along. Uh, I was trained as a high school science teacher, and for six years I taught and coached in rural high schools, uh, hard sciences like chemistry, physics, stuff like that. Um, I'm a product of coaching education programs. Uh, my graduate degrees in sports science, which... At the time, and you know, study whatever you want. Mm -hmm. uh, 44, 45 years in the business. Uh, I consult in a lot of sport disciplines. Um, my main sport is track and field, of course. And uh, currently I work at Altus, which is a private training center in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Great stuff. You spoke there briefly about your, your teaching background in science and I remember hearing you say in a previous interview, I can't exa exactly remember which one, but I remember you, you said that you felt that to really sort of obtain your, you know, mastery of coaching, you felt it was really, really good to actually teach for a while, you know, to stand up in front of a group and to teach others and, um, you know, to maybe consolidate your knowledge more so in the areas of the sciences. Uh, this year, I started teaching at a personal training college and your kind of words rang true in my head that, you know, it's really brought me on profoundly as a coach because of me having to stand up and understand concepts better and to be able to, you know, make sure that I can actually explain it to, to the students. So can we maybe just touch into that? Why, why do you think that teaching, it, it could be something that coaches should look to do in terms of enhancing their mastery as, as coaches? Well, I don't think you can separate the two, um, the two concepts. Coaching is teaching. Yeah. Um, I think that if you're asked to teach something or present something uh, and you want to feel secure in what you're doing, you study with more depth and purpose than if you're just perusing a topic or an article or a book. Um, it's kind of like if you lay your butt on the line in front of God and everybody, you, you better know what you're doing. So I think it intensifies and deepens the study and, and the pondering and the organization and synthesis. 
And above all, I think it forces people to define essentials. What are the essential concepts or topics, you know, that have to be addressed and presented and understood for this to move forward? I really like that word secure. You just said there, you know, to get secure. I, I like that. I like that. It's kind of consolidate your ideas in your mind. That's, that's definitely something I've taken away is that I've nearly learned more teaching because sometimes the students, you know, they come up with these questions. They're like, you know, something I actually... I need to look more into that. So it's uh, I, I definitely get what you mean. It definitely helps you to, as you said, synthesize and formulate your concepts more solidly in your mind. Yeah, um, and I think when you teach and present these questions and interactions post, um, mm -hmm. help define needs for further study or uh, blank spots or weaknesses you had in your presentation. Yeah. So to me, the debriefs, whether they're formal or informal, after a teaching session, are the lifeblood of growth uh, for educators. Absolutely, and I, I think a lot of people maybe fall into the trap of being afraid to realize that they don't know something, you know, to kind of save face, they nearly don't want to get involved in, as you said, kind of debriefs or feedbacks, but you nearly see that all the masters in any field, they, they wanted, you know, you often hear like the, the top coaches saying, I know enough to know that I don't know at all, or I am the dumbest person in the room, with these kind of, you know, tongue-in-cheek sayings, but, the great ones always wanted to realize what they didn't know or they wanted to, to, to constructively, you know, get feedback on what they could do better. So I think maybe yeah, it, I, it could be a solution. I think if you've been in, in the business long enough, uh, humility is is a way of life. Yeah. Like the human body in sports so complex. If you think you have the way or a method, then you just haven't done it long enough. <laughs> Amen to that. So, Dan, uh, just before we, we get into the, the meat and bones of this uh, interview, which will be, um, as we said offline, about training theory and then obviously uh, pe pedagogy too, I really want to get your, your, your thoughts and discussions on pedagogy. I really, really enjoy when you talk about that. But just uh, something to, that I always ask uh, everyone that comes onto the podcast is about their influences. I know you often speak about Tom Telez as a, a huge mentor, um, but in terms of... Um, influences and mentors and not only within your your in like your profession as a coach but even life mentors or life influences who've been the biggest uh, people in your life well <clears throat> obviously religious faith and things that uh, dovetail into spiritual pursuit would be a big one hmm. uh, William James was a writer who influenced me as a teacher early days um Hermann Hesse, uh, a German author. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard uh, is another person I've done a lot of reading. Being German, of course, Goethe was a, a huge influence. Uh, probably in teaching format, pedagogical structure. Uh, there's a Swiss developmental psychologist, uh, Jean Piaget, yeah. uh, that, that really struck me in. You know, it's probably the template I use every year, every every piece that I write when it comes to, you know, educational progression or development. Great stuff. Great stuff. Uh, have you ever came across the work of uh, uh, Joseph Shilton Pierce? Because he, he's been... No, he, I think you'd really love his work. He, he only recently passed away this year. He was 90 years old, but... He's, he's just written a lot of work on human development and, and child development and spirituality, but he, he, he was greatly influenced by uh, John Pierre's work as well. So he mentions him. Oh, a send me some uh, PDFs, please. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Dan, something, another question I'd like to ask everyone to get their, their uh, voice on is, currently, what are some of the best, the very best things, but what are also some of the very sort of not-so-good things you see within the whole training industry? And with the not so good things, what are some potential solutions that you might offer? So the good and the bad, essentially. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I, I kind of stay away from absolutism or polarity. I, I think, uh, you know, it's a spectrum. I think there are a lot of coaches and, and clubs and federations and whatnot doing really good things. I think there's some that are still in the dark. Uh, I think in this information age, probably the big issue is sifting it all down and deciding what is essential or what's important. Uh, 
uh, what's timely. You know, I don't think there's necessarily bad exercises, but uh, when do you use them? And how do you set and wrap them? And what do you do with rest intervals? And what are the densities? So <clears throat> I think the application of knowledge is probably where we're all struggling right now with the internet and courses and certifications. We're swimming in knowledge. But how to apply it, when to apply it, cost-benefit analysis, those kinds of things which really fall under the umbrella of application, uh, probably create the most frustration uh, and confusion, you know, in my opinion, mentoring a lot of guys and personally as a coach. There's a, a fantastic book by a guy called uh, Greg McKeown called Essentialism. He basically touches exactly what you said there, you know, to, to really kind of attain true mastery or your highest potential contribution, you need to find out what is essential. And it's a, it's a fantastic read. Like, you know, it's just the way he goes about, like, you know, finding out what is essential. Like he, for instance, like he, he gives the example of like cleaning out your closet. He says, if you haven't worn it in a year, it's probably not essential. And he just kind of uses that as an example. But he's saying with life things, then you need to always step back and ask, is this getting me closer to my goal? Is it essential? So it's a, uh, it's great to hear you have a similar concept saying that, you know, we kind of struggle to see what is the essentials. Well, and I, I think dovetailing with that is confirmational bias. <clears throat> you know, we're, we're a product of what we've done ourselves or what has worked uh, at key moments. And so then we build data and cases and paradigms to, to fit into those previous experiences. So I'm, see a lot of blindness uh, in myself also with this confirmational bias. So that's why I stay plugged into my network and, and key mentors and colleagues to challenge me on a regular basis uh, to do regular audits uh, to make sure that I'm not burying myself in this confirmational bias paradigm that I've created. Yeah, I mean, on the... Hammer Media podcast you did with Martin Bingzer back a few months ago. He he brought up the idea of groupthink and he asked you about like you know how how not to fall into that trap because you know if you're constantly maybe around like-minded people you can fall into groupthink. But I suppose as you said you you know you don't want that you want them to kind of challenge you and I suppose that's the good thing maybe about those mentorships and all this is that you're getting outside coaches so you're getting people who aren't within the sort of the the group that you're constantly around, so you're kind of getting that sort of critical sort of feedback from outside sources, which again goes yeah, back. I think, Go ahead. I, I think the beauty of our Altus experience with interns and our ACP coach course that lasts a week and our therapist course is they serve as outside audits, mm. unvarnished. Yeah. So the, the line of questioning, the feedback, back, the debriefs we get off that serve as an audit and our population is very diverse, you know, rugby, football, MMA, you name it. And I've always been a believer, if, if you've stumbled onto a truth, whether it's training theory, biomechanics, what have you, uh, it should be relatively universal. It should be able to scale up and scale down. And these experiences uh, allow us to do that. And, and that's why I keep a broad network also of people outside of sport, whether it's in and medicine or management or military training or, um, you know, pedagogical, philosophical uh, interface. So I think the diversity of your uh, network is also critical to ensure against bias. Mm, definitely. Big time. So, okay, so one last question, Ben, before uh, I ask you about um, your thoughts on training theory, and, and we'll shoot into that, is, is there anything in particular lately that it, that really excites you, anything at all, I suppose, particularly around the training profession, but it could be anything within your own life, is there something you're seeing right now that you think, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this turns out, is there anything within the industry, or anything at all, or if, if even if there isn't, is there not? <laughs> yeah, I mean... <clears throat> Like I said earlier, I'm swimming in articles to read and books to read and interesting people. So, you know, I couldn't delineate to a topic. Uh, I'm really spending a lot of time in, in mental resilience and mental skills and studying, you know, advanced military programming in that because these guys are 
put a lot of money and effort into it. And uh, so that that's a keen interest. And then obviously biomechanics and motor behavior are uh, long time, uh, long term interest that you know I never stop digging, searching, and experimenting. And you know, I think it's important to realize when we come up with an idea, it's just a hypothesis. And I'm not afraid to get an all hypothesis. I think we learn through failure. Absolutely. Yeah. You either win or you learn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dan, so getting into the training theory um, aspect, uh, as I spoke about offline, uh, Kevin Tyler had you do a training talk a few years back to the uh, Canadian Athletics um, uh, Coaching Centre, and, and it was it was fantastic. It actually used to be up on YouTube, but then it got taken down. Maybe someone put it up, and they, would, they weren't meant to put it up. But I, I must have watched it, uh, I'd say, seven, eight times through, and I actually had the audio, which I listened to repeatedly. I got it like four or five years ago from a friend, and I listened over and over because I was just blown away by it. Um, and the more I've grown as a coach, it's kind of like super training. The more I grew as a coach, the more I go back and refer to it and understand more and more. I always find super training is the same. You read it, and you don't understand it, but then you go back to it two years later and go, that makes sense now. Yeah. So well, thanks uh, for saying that. Glad it helped. Yeah, no, honestly, it, it was a fantastic talk. I really enjoyed it, and how you compared like the training of Bernie to to Donovan and the different sort of psyches they brought, and I kept laughing about like anytime you talk about Donovan, like he was just like you know anything that was general, he just didn't want to know. He just you know med ball throws off the wall, and just he was he was tough. Um, but it was really good. But in terms of your training theory, Dan, um, like. Like, what are your overall like? If I said to you, what is your you know philosophy? I know some coaches don't like that word philosophy because they, they say I use training principles, but whatever you want to call it, your overall philosophy when it comes to the training theory side of things. When do you want to maybe just get into that? Sure. Well, I think you have to have a philosophy. You may not call it that, or you may try to color it or dress it up in some other term. But at the end of the day, you know, if you don't have a philosophy, then how are you operating? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think periodization probably gets a bad name. Uh, you know, you got your polarity guys that say periodization is dead or whatnot. Being an old classroom teacher, uh, you better have a lesson plan or you're going to get lost in a hurry and the Indians are going to run the, uh, the fort real quick. So I believe in having structured uh, programs, uh, but I personally write in ranges and percentages and um, have lots of options, and the athlete and the performance staff are all contributors. Um, I look at our programming as a basic blueprint where the final decisions are made on the day, maybe even menu item to menu item. Uh, like I said earlier, I'm an essentialist, so we try to identify what are the absolute fundamentals or essentials for this athlete, their sport, their state. Uh, stage of development, and probably the main driver is we operate with the KPI uh, paradigm, a key performance indicator paradigm, where we identify uh, for an athlete that comes to us, their current station in life, you know, what are their technical KPIs, what are their physiological KPIs, what are their uh, mental KPIs, what are their lifestyle KPIs, what are their medical KPIs. So we develop files for each athlete, and we have these KPIs identified and agreed upon between the coaching staff, athletes, and performance staff. And then we rank these things hierarchically uh, within the file, and then we rank the files, you know, on top of files. So that's our starting spot. Uh, is identifying essentials and KPIs, uh, the big bits of programming and event needs are pretty obvious. Uh, you know, the art of coaching is how you creatively put all that together in a given time frame. With those KPIs, like, could could you maybe like give an example of one? So you're saying like there's mechanics, there was physiology, there was lifestyle, like. So, like, what would be a lifestyle KPI? Like, what, what, how would that look? Or could... that would entertain uh, things like diet, sleep hygiene, um, 
understanding of sport life balances, um, relationship issues, family of origin issues, um, you know, anything that goes under the broad brush of lifestyle, which will have an influence on training or competing. And by, by KPI, like, is it that they're ticking the boxes in terms that their sleep is optimal and that their, their new nutrition's on point? I mean, are you, are you saying that the, that we know that they're hitting that KPI if, like, they're eating well and their sleep's on? Song like we know well, that, I, I think with any entity you identify, you go, you've got to have methods for measuring, monitoring, yeah, uh, debriefing upon it, uh, creating action points from the debriefs, and then having firm monitoring systems that actually measure where action points are occurring. I think that's in business and management, it's where it falls down. Everybody has these briefs and these debriefs and these mission statements and visions. They come up with these action points, and then there's no gatekeeper to ensure these action points uh, are actually occurring. Yeah, yeah. I, I've often heard you say too, you you have a second KPI, which is key, uh, key performance inhibitors as well, that you also look at. Can you maybe just maybe touch yes. on that? Because I think that's something people have never really heard before. Because I remember when I heard it from you first, it was the first time I ever heard it. Well, there there are certain things in those areas that can be an, an inhibitor. Uh, so say you, you have a terrible diet, like you, you eat fast food and you eat irregular and you binge eat and so on and so forth, then diet is actually a huge inhibitor. Mm. So you know, the indicator might be education and improvement, but the factor that you're dealing with is an inhibitor. Um, say you have you know, terrible running mechanics and you're a field sport athlete, well, the mechanics are an inhibitor. Uh, the KPIs to work on, you know, are identified metrics and concepts that we can change in that inhibitor uh, to make it an enabler. Good stuff. I know a big part of your your philosophy too is getting um, the individual athlete's injury history and previous training. Um, so can you maybe just maybe touch on why like injury history and previous training regimes is so big to you when you initially start working with an athlete because I know you've spoken spoken about this at length with, with like Greg Rutherford I, I mean I heard you on the sports coach radio it was very interesting you know how you described Greg that if you try to push his strength train or too many high central nervous system loads on him in a week he just broke because he's just yeah. like he's so neurologically wired so maybe kind of speak could you maybe touch on that you know injury history and, and previous sort of train history of at least that come to you first but for me, that, that comes in the uh, either recruiting process or the introductory briefing process. Um, you have to know what an athlete's done before. You know, have, have they ticked all the boxes that are important to you? Have they ticked the boxes of essentials? Uh, have they ever identified KPIs or did they just do a uh, paint the house and hope it looks all right kind of mindset? Uh, so knowing what they've done, what they like to do, what they don't like to do, gives you insight. You know, say there's a big list of things they don't like to do, and some of them are critical in your mind. Well, now you're going to have to come up with ways to reintroduce these things or do a big educational process on why they're critical. Uh, the same goes with injuries. You know, uh, surgeries or chronic injuries or whatnot are inhibitors. So how are we going to monitor and prevent uh, acute injuries from happening or chronic injuries from flaring? Is, are there things we can do uh, to lessen lost man hours, uh, lessen lost comp opportunities? So without studying history, you know, we're doomed to repeat. And in terms of that intake, Dan, do you leave that to, like, a physical therapist? I know, like, you've worked with Jerry Ramadidis, um, and he did a lot of work with you back, with you know, a few years ago. Like, do, do you be in – obviously, you, you're probably present to that, but do you leave that to, like, the, the physical therapist to do a thorough sort of intake? Or is there certain sort of, you know, screens or assessments that you like to always see done with everyone? Well, to me – 
training should be a screen. Every menu item you have that an athlete undertakes is a screen. Yeah, you know, I think coaches have been doing screens for centuries. It's called watching practice. So if you write it, you should be watching it, and you should be analyzing it, and you should be measuring stuff over time to see if there's a change or a shift, you know, whether it's improvement or decline or inhibition. Uh, so our intakes are multifaceted and multilayered. Performance staff, uh, people have their formats and questions and time. Uh, but to me, the coach is the gatekeeper. So ultimately, the coach is the director of performance staff members, and they're questioning, line of questioning, depth, frequency of questioning. And because um, you, you can go down the rabbit hole, you can get so medicalized that the kid never trains. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's probably a question I want to ask, too, is like, you know, what is overkill? I mean, in terms of like, do you run any bloods on your athletes? Are you doing any like, you know, cortisol to testosterone ratio? Are you doing any saliva panels? You're like, do do you get that deep with some people, or again, is that context to an individual for more buy-in, or you know, it's, it's kind of like, at what point is paralysis by analysis? And I suppose maybe it's context to the individual. Maybe maybe some individuals need more objective feedback to get that buy-in. What's your thought on that? Well, you know, I grew up in an era where I had no budget no staff and whatnot. So you had to come up with field test markers and measurements. So uh, <clears throat> there's already confirmational bias built into my programming from years of experience and reams of data. You know, I don't want to throw all that data away. Uh, it serves a purpose. I think the, we, we have a real problem with technology now. We're collecting just tons of data. And, the, you know, you, you got to ask some tough questions. Who's the gatekeeper of this data? Who disseminates it? To whom is it disseminated? How is it synthesized and willowed down? Uh, is the administration above you, behind it? You know, is the general manager and the president and the head coach and, and the coaching staff, are they in? Uh, does the athlete see merit? You know, if any of the stakeholders aren't all in, then I, I think you're going to be frustrated with uh, this collection. Big time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Dan, uh, something I, I really enjoyed, um, it was, obviously it, it was a, another presentation that I saw, I actually got it again off the Canadian Athletics Coaching Centre, where you speak about your, your three-day rollover, can you maybe just touch into your three-day rollover, and I actually loved <laughs> to start that talk, you were saying like, you know, the sort of evolution or the, the genesis of the three-day rollover, and one was, you know, you said about your wife, you were like, this just got crazy, we were getting phone calls at like three in the morning, and from people in China, and my wife's like, this, this, this has to stop. And you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I was, oh. la I was laughing at that. I thought it was very, very good. Yeah, one, one of the problems we have in modern sports, especially if you, you, know, you coach a diverse sport like track and field, is you'll have athletes stationed all over the world competing or in training camps or, or what have you. And you can't control weather travel problems, uh, meeting directors deciding you're not in the meet or all of a sudden you are in the meet. So there's a lot of variables that work against a structured weekly program or even a structured monthly program. Uh, when you're rounding into peak shape, uh, you know, despite all you do, it's very hard to predict readiness from day to day, especially uh, in year one or two with an athlete where they're still adjusting and adapting to uh, the format. So what we found through time is in season, in a competitive season with power speed athletes, there's essentially three to four fundamental types of training sessions that occur. Uh, with the fourth being the competition itself. I think some people don't realize competition is extreme training it's extreme stress and there's extreme ramifications from that competition so we give great respect to the competition and then the other three days uh, we design sessions built around the essentials to maintain fitness and sharpness and uh, emotional mental uh, arousal curves in the proper place and 
with the three-day rollover, then the athlete and the coach, maybe through conversation, makes decisions on what days you train, what days you rest, if you're resting. Is it an active rest day? Is it a therapy day? Is it a travel day? Uh, it gives you latitude and freedom to deal with the consistent variables you encounter uh, during a competitive season. Great stuff. And I highly recommend anyone to, to check that video out on the uh, CACC website. They're actually currently doing up their website right now, so I think it's down at the moment, but I'm sure they'll, they'll put it back up. It was just it was very, very interesting. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, on on that Dan, uh, there was a you probably you probably seen it and probably read it. Um, Matt Jordan and uh, your one of your partners at Altus. Um, why am I blanking on his name there all of a sudden? Stu. Stu McMillan. She's I just blanked there for a second. As we say in Ireland, I had a bit of a brain fart there. Uh, yeah. So uh, Matt Jordan and Stu McMillan, they, they had that article series and uh, they spoke about like you know the. Uh, the their microcycle setup was Stu or Stu did, and he uh, accredited you in that one of the articles. He he showed your microcycle and you know uh, sort of saying you had was that you know your your micro should take care of your macro, and I've often heard you say and you mentioned earlier on that if if something is sort of universal, you should be able to distill it down and it should still apply and work. So can you maybe just speak about why like the microcycle, the weekly cycle is is very very important to you. Well, I think when you're a young coach and you're trying to organize all these concepts and thoughts and whatnot, I think it's important to do <clears throat> yearly plans, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, which we call macro cycles and pretty elaborate mesocycles, which might be phases or months. But where the rubber hits the road for me is in the micro cycle. So, you know, whether you use in a one week or two week or three week or what have you, that's where the menu items get more precise, selective, and that's where the real creativity uh, bounced against monitoring and debriefs and analysis is uh, occurring. So I think that Figuring out the, the length of a microcycle and the menu items and the density patterns uh, is what, what separates really good coaching and, and programming from average. Yeah, big time, big time. Um, another really, uh, there's about two or three really interesting points you brought up in that training theory talk I mentioned earlier, the, the one you did um, a number of years ago. Uh, again, like first time I listened to that talk, you know, I, I was such, I'm, you know, I was, I was so young and green to the field. Like some of the things went way over my head, but as I've grown more and learned more, they make so much more sense now. And one thing that was very interesting was you spoke about this idea of peaking. You were like, I've never really, you were the way you described, it, like you're like, I never really got peaking. It, it never really seemed to work for my athletes. So you know, this idea that you taper down and kind of athletes just lay around for a day or two, and but then they come up being sluggish and they don't qualify for maybe their single event, but then later on in the team event they blow it up. And you were kind of talking about you know that it takes a while for the for the system to kind of reroute and re rewire. So maybe you can just give your thoughts in on this idea of peaking and how like you know maybe having a full rest day or even two days off for some athletes or a lot of athletes just isn't isn't a way to go because. I know here in Ireland that's a huge thing. It's like tradition, like like the teams just won't do something the day before a game. And I'm, I've often tried to sort of change that culture because I've often seen that the team's very sluggish then if they take the whole day off in between. Whereas we could have done something just to reboot the system, you know. And I try and give examples like the All Blacks. The All Blacks will do like primer sessions where they go in and lift the day of a game or the day before. Um, because I think most people like. They think, oh, we're doing train sessions the day before a match. We're gonna we're gonna accumulate this fatigue, and you're like, it's not fatigue. Like it's to you know sort of reboot the system if you like. So maybe if you can touch on that. Yeah, well, I I think peaking's a interesting topic. I I think there's some sport disciplines where people quote peak, you know, like swimming, weightlifting, where the workloads are so insane that when you take your foot off the gas. Uh, systems supercompensate and you have a great performance. You know, is that peaking or is that just stopping the insanity? Because <laughs> um, I think a lot of those sport disciplines overtrain, but, you know, that's my personal bias and opinion. Uh, I think in modern sport, 
you know, like in NFL or NHL or NBA, where the season's 10 months long, how, how are you going to peak? Like, it, it's a different project. It's like, how do you keep people at a high level of performance and healthy for 10 months, culminating in maybe a championship round? Um, that goes way beyond, in my mind, what we call peaking. In a micro sense, uh, probably what people mean by peaking is how do we organize sessions and daily plans within a smaller unit of time, like a week or 10 days, that lead to a major competition. Um, a lot of times people look at the end of this thing and judge success and failure. Did we rest the day before or two days before or whatever? They're doing a back-end analysis on a myopic part of the thing. If you train insanely three days in a row, five days before a comp, that may have been the debilitator more so than what you did the day or two before, if that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. So I think studying and experimenting with density patterns, and in some cases, if you can, volume and intensity, uh, in conjunction with what you're doing a day or two before a competition, may bring more fruit. Mm. I think that in my experience from reading just millions of medical studies and all, all the stuff you guys at S&C keep producing, uh, it's pretty evident that we have athletes that respond to certain things and we have others that don't. I think the jargon today is responders and non-responders. So I've had kids that can rest a day or two before major comp and they're unbelievably good. I've had athletes that if I rest them the day before comp, they're unbelievably bad. And this has, you know, been trialed over numerous competitions and maybe even seasons. So pretty quick, you learn to study athletes uh, through the training process, experimenting during the training process, and you can willow out who's probably going to be a responder and a non-responder to rest. And what we do if our off weeks or unload weeks is we play with density patterns and then study when we go back to the next work cycle who responds quickly and who doesn't to give us insight into responsiveness or non-responsiveness to rest. I'd say that would be a harder thing maybe to implement within a team, would you think? Because obviously you've got so many... Such a volume of players that you probably have responders and non-responders within a team setup. Yeah, but you know, I, I think a lot of times in team sport we use team sport as an excuse for yeah. stopping the creative process. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Uh, so you know, if you have a good relationship with your head coach and you have a good relationship with a few athletes. Um, to do a potentiation workout the day before a match, uh, calling it an experiment or a study, you know, I think that can happen. Yeah. If, if you got guys that don't respond, you know, maybe they come in and get physio or maybe they come in and uh, do a parasympathetic uh, circuit scheme or something like that. And, and it's about education. It's like, okay, you need to rest, but, man, if you come in and, uh, get an effleurage, it'll increase this rest on what it's doing to your biochemistry. So some of this is about teaching. Yeah, big time. Continuing just on from this type of idea then of, you know, the, the peaking and uh, you mentioned sort of like density schemes, a really interesting topic that you really brought to my attention in that talk, again, that Kevin Tyler had to do. Uh, you, you brought up this idea of chronic overload syndrome and acute relieving syndrome, which I thought was fantastic. And what I love about this was you spoke about this as a global universal rule. You weren't, this is like, you were like, uh, your, your exact line was even the rides guys understood this, that there's stacks, you know, there's cycles on and off. And I mean, if you look around at the, the universe and the world, it's the universe is a dualistic mechanism it, it only knows by contrast so like again like you, you wouldn't know daytime without night so 
there are no free lunches when it comes to like biology or physiology so there has to be ups and downs and I really uh, when you said this you were so good you spoke about an athlete you worked with where he just had the same nutrition over and over and over and he got into a chronic overload with that and that was holding his performance back so could you maybe talk about chronic overload and acute relieving syndrome for the listeners yeah, I, and I think one of the other topics that probably dovetails into this is overreaching. <clears throat> you know, to me, overreaching is uh, where you're you're overloading with a design purpose for a design period of time, but you know that the athlete can bounce back from that. And that's, uh, to me, a very sophisticated uh, paradigm. You know, I would only use with an advanced athlete that's been with me in quite a while so that we have a lot of metrics and communication about where our breaking points. I think overload can occur in multiple spheres of influence. It could be psychological overload from the monotony of the work or the team dynamic or coach dynamic. Uh, it could be emotional overload from uh, family or lifestyle issues. Uh, the, there's a lot of systems that can overload and I think the adrenals uh, are kind of the regulator in this overload or over-relieve syndrome. And the adrenals with the uh, HPTA axis uh, are pretty quick and, and pretty radical with how they influence uh, hormonal programming. So I think that being aware that chronicity of any type is a slow drain and stressor to this HPTA axis. And just as there's two sides to a coin, a rapid relief from stressors can also upset this axis. So the art is in keeping this axis relatively stable and upright. Um, but, you know, that's what training is. It upsets this axis. You know, so we got to figure out where is the tipping point where we do negative damage that's hard to recover from. Why do you think, in, in your own experience, uh, like it, a lot of people, like they, they stick with the same type thing over and over? It's almost like a safety mechanism or a safety blanket. They're nearly afraid to not change or put that bit of variation or to get that acute relieving syndrome, even though they themselves consciously would agree, yeah, I know I need to change from here, but I just still go in and do the same thing because it's, it's just, it's like comfortable or it's like a, it's almost like a coping mechanism and psychologically. Have you seen that? Or, you know, it's really hard to break the habit, even though the person would, would consciously acknowledge, yeah, I understand I need to change something here. Well, I think that's probably a sports psychology uh, issue at the base of this discussion, not all athletes are risk takers. Yeah. Yeah, big time. Big time. So if you're not a risk taker and you need to improve your risk taking capabilities to, to see the forest for the trees, then that's the coach's job is to educate and supply experiences that promote increased risk taking. I don't think athletes are, they have tendencies, so you, you, you know, there's two big mailboxes for athletes there. Some are just genetically and conditionally wired to be risk takers and others aren't, but it's a spectrum. And if you can shift an athlete, a half a standard deviation on that spectrum, uh, the payoff is exponential. Yeah, I think you described Donovan as, as like somebody who was a warrior and a risk taker and you know, he could just switch on a dime like he was just had that mentality. I think whereas, was it Bernie or or, or uh, he was more sort of cerebral and he needed more structure? Am I correct in saying that? Yes, that's true. Yeah, I remember, I remember saying that. Uh, one, one final thing from that talk, and, then, and maybe we'll move on to pedagogy and we'll wrap it up because, uh, again, I want to be respectful of, of your time. Um, you spoke about this idea of testing, Dan, and it was, it was, again, it was so interesting. You were like, you know, I tested before, I tested at the end, and I got all these crazy results. And then you're like, eh, I started testing in between the sort of training cycles. I just sneak it in there, and I started getting better, more reliable results. So maybe just, I think that's a concept that a lot of listeners might have heard before, this idea of what testing mid-cycle, it's crazy. Why would you do that? So maybe just uh, 
maybe touching that for some of the listeners. Well, you know, this may be a reflection on how I design things and implement things, but I don't think so because I mentor hundreds of coaches and I observe hundreds of others and uh, I follow people's programming and formatting. It's, you know, a lifelong study. And one of the problems, and it's the rage now with all this technology, is, you know, we got to test, we got to measure. If we don't measure it, then we don't know, so on and so forth. And I agree that measurement is an essential component of coaching. But I found that, you know, if I tested at the beginning of a cycle, it would negatively affect the next few days of training, so I lost training. Or, you know, I was getting a snap, it's kind of like a blood test. I was getting a snapshot of the athlete that day at that point in time. So my responders to rest would test really good at the beginning of the cycle. My non-responders to rest would test terrible at the beginning of the cycle. Uh, Testing at the end of the cycle, you know, I bulk of my career was in university settings where kids had academic load and sport load, um, and I only had kids for four years. So, you know, if I had a, a kid in year one or year two that was really overwhelmed just learning the program and adapting to the basic stressors, it would consistently test poorer than the, the more experienced advanced athletes. So the delineation in there was really about years in the program, not so much test data. So those kinds of scenarios, I was like, you know, this testing before and after, or, you know, it's just not giving me reliable, usable, cost-effective information. And I also noted while I was going through this decade of being enamored with testing, that a lot of kids were getting personal best in the weight room or on a throwing test or a jump test or a running test. while we were in the middle of a cycle, you know, on a particular menu item on a particular day. And I was like, well, so I started crunching data that we obtained within cycles instead of at the beginning of the end. And the data of fractal patterns from testing in route, if you will, was just far superior. So that's how it's kind of evolved for me. I know also in that talk you mentioned about data collection. I think you were saying like some years you were better at than others. Do, do you keep, have you kept a record of nearly every sort of program you've done with your athletes for data collection? Like are, are you that sort of um, strict or organized with it? Like do, do you have, do you just keep everything or or like, or again, to come back to what's essential, to, is it just certain things you always keep on record with athletes? Um, I, I think... My data collection and storage uh, has kind of been a roller coaster. If I've had staff or help, uh, it's been better. If I've been overwhelmed, it's been poor. That said, there are some essentials. Uh, you know, we're big believers. The athletes keep very detailed daily training diaries, so that's always the source that I can go back to. Uh, but there are essential things that you know we record on regular basis: various lifts in the weight room, various jump tests, various throw tests, uh, various uh, running time tests. And a lot of times we don't tell athletes we're just that we're testing. You know, we're just collecting information during that menu item in a practice session. So. Last few areas I want to get into, obviously pedagogy is going to be the next one, but before I just get into that, I just want to talk about your thoughts on skill acquisition, motor learning skill acquisition, because it's only an area within the last, I'd say, year I've really started to educate myself on. And the opening question will be, why do you think there's such little attention to that? I mean, it's like it's all, like most of the training theories around more of the traditional physical capacities or acquiring motor qualities you know, developing strength and explosive strength and elastic reactive strength and obviously then we have our acceleration max and um, um, maximal speed and then in field-based games you have your multi-directional speed or agility. Um, but then when it comes to actually motor learning, I mean, it's only it's only really yourself and Franz Bosch being the two sort of people who are kind of always talking about it from 
you know, a training standpoint, how important it is to conceptualize it. In that talk, once again, that I've referred to a few times, you spoke about stimulated that, but then this idea of actualizing, realize, uh, actualization, realization. And again, it was just a light bulb in my head when you were like, can the athlete do it when mom's there, or when mom's not there, in the rain, in the wind? Because my sport here in, in, back in Ireland is hurling. It's a traditional Irish game. And, you know, it made so much sense to me that you'd see these really skillful hurlers when they're not under any pressure. But then when it came to a game, they choke in terms of their technical abilities. It's just because they didn't, you know, whether it was emotional or they just hadn't practiced enough of striking the ball and against the wind or like all these things. It just made me realize there's so much more to this motor learning idea and, and mastering your, your technical skills. So maybe just give your thoughts on, first of all, why do you think there's such little education on it? Maybe because it's such a complicated topic. And then uh, maybe just touch on this idea of actualization, realization, if, if that's okay. Well, I think motor learning is probably classed as soft science. You know, I think it kind of falls under the umbrella of neuropsychology, um, you know, with an underpinning of pedagogical development psychology. So a relatively young science, but I think the, the reason there's hesitation or blowback is uh, polarity-wise, there's a lot of coaches in the business that don't think you can change a person's skill set or technique. Yeah. And you would in some sport disciplines, it's a given. You know, like if a thrower comes to a throwing coach and they're doing gross motor errors, uh, the coach makes suggestions, the athlete changes, and all of a sudden they throw farther. Mm -hmm. Or if we're teaching someone how to putt or swing a golf club or strike a tennis ball or uh, whatnot, you know, we're like, oh, yeah, we, we can teach those things. Well, why can't you teach running? Yeah. Why can't you teach decision making? You know, you, you can teach if it's skillful, you can teach it. And it's predicated that, therefore, you have a biomechanical model of the activity or the component that you're addressing. And a lot of coaches can't see movement in real time. Yeah. So if you don't have a model and you can't see in real time, you're going to avoid it. A really interesting area in the mode learning theory that I've read is that I just want to get your thoughts because you're talking about have, having a model and uh, I, I'm not I, I'm not saying this is what you're saying but in, in some of the literature I've read they, they said like coaches like they, they some coaches believe like there's this perfect model of technique that everyone has to do but then there's obviously the athlete themselves the organism and their constraints that they bring to that model and they'll figure out the best way of doing that actual model that suits their mechanics best. Would you agree with that to a certain extent? Yes, I, and I think this is where the polarity Nazis kind of muddy the water. Yeah. There, there's a bandwidth to the model characteristics that can be enhanced or inhibited by physiological problems, genetics, development problems, uh, yeah. uh, psychological processing speed, so on and so forth. Absolutely. But... If you don't have a model, then you got chaos yeah. at the end of the day. You, you've got to teach towards something. Yeah. Like if you watch the eight finalists in the men's 100-meter sprint, there's a lot of technical landmarks these guys have in common. Yeah, yeah definitely. No, I, I now, 100 agree. You know, does the back arm block at 130 degrees at the elbow joint or 120 or 115? That's bandwidth. But the fact is... That elbow angle is open when the arm blocks behind the athlete in high-speed running. It's obtuse angle, not acute. Yeah, that, that word bandwidth, uh, uh, you know, really just kind of cements. That's a loving uh, uh, nutshell sort of way of looking at that, you know. Again, a continuum or a bandwidth is that like you need this like a global model to kind of set things from, but nothing's case in stone. There is this flexibility or bandwidth about it, so... It's a great way of looking at it. It's, it's how I would have perceived it anyway, but it's just a beautiful way of encapsulating it there on the, on the podcast. Just one final thing, Dan, and then we'll just wrap up on, on the pure pedagogy then. Um, just this idea of specificity and variation in training. I know Franz, Franz, Franz Boss, I interviewed him on, on a few episodes ago, and I know on um, one of the episodes, I don't know if it was Robert Pace's one, he asked about Franz's work, and you kind of said, listen, I haven't read enough to give the full critique, so... I'm not, I'm not asking you to do that, but 
just in terms of he talks about specificity and variation, other people talk about it. Like how, what are your thoughts there? Because again, if you get too specific, you know, you lose out in variation. And, and Francie's variation is another way of overloading the system, you know, giving it, putting more variation into it. Like, do, do you utilize variation in your technical models with your, with your track and field athletes or any of your athletes? And how do you see this continuum of specific variation in terms of getting more transfer of training? Well, again, I, I think the the literature and the discussion <clears throat> has gotten very polemic on this topic. Mm-hmm. So you got the specificity camp and you got the uh, transference camp and uh, you, you got all these factions, you know, with their bias and whatnot. I'm probably a little more general and universal in in thinking on this topic. Um, I believe there are certain activities you do that supply context. And I think an athlete needs uh, a certain accumulation and incubation period of contextual activities so that they have a toolbox, if you will, to make instantaneous flow state decisions Mm -hmm. in movement pattern. Um, I think that if if all you do is drills, um, you know, I I don't find drills necessarily uh, high in transference, but they may have a place in a period of time where they supply context. And is this, would this be why you, and and correct me if I'm wrong here, but is this why you always sort of keep a general strength circuit all year round in your training, do you do that to a certain degree or keep it? Like- yeah, for me, the, the general strength, the general physical activities we do are, they have foundations in biology, parasympathetics, and, you know, a lot of, of biological factors, but also uh, making sure that the primal movements and primal systems are rebooted, recharged, yeah. and restored for functional thought. That's what, that's kind of what I'm getting at because you mentioned toolbox there. I'm saying you just are you keeping that tread in there to make sure like that toolbox is always there to support, as you said, more of those, you know, uh, reactive, reflective movement decisions made by the system. Yeah, it's my opinion. I don't have the technology to prove merit, but um, I do have a lot of anecdotal uh, data that says you know it's doing what I want it to do. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue with you. So. <laughs> Um, finally then, uh, uh, and by the way, just uh, if I don't say this, I want to say it now, I, I'm definitely a believer in being a generalist as well. I get all these people telling me, you have to specialize, specialize, but I remember I heard you say I'm a generalist, and like, because uh, like, that was my feet, my deep down feeling, you know, to the matter of my bones, even before I, I came across your work, and I was like, yes, a kindred spirit who believes in, in being a generalist, because as far as I'm concerned, it's all connected. But, uh, well, I, you know, I think sp- there are some people that are hardwired to be specialists, and mm-hmm. I think they add value. Oh, I'm but yeah. I, I don't think they should run the show. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. So finally, Dan, um, you did an interview with Lauren Lando, and something you said at the start of that interview I, I found was so profound, and it's something that's kind of just been on my mind ever since. You know, every time I kind of think just about coaching and life in general, and you know, anyone who hears your name and, 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 you know, associates you with sort of elite athletes, you know, they, they might get this idea that, God, you know, you must be, you know, it's all about Olympic Games and the training process and everything. And one of the things you said to Lauren was you the most important thing you, you uh, find with training athletes is that it has to be fun. And just when you said that, I'm like, this is coming from Dan Fat one of the most successful, well-known coaches in the world who's coached multiple world champions and Olympic medalists. And that's the first thing he said, is that training has to be fun. And I just thought it was so profound for you to say that, given the level of athletes you've worked with. So can you maybe just touch on that and then from there maybe take it into the pedagogy and this idea of you also did a great, this great YouTube clips of you when you were at UK Sport, and you spoke about you know the idea of the athletes need to trust you and they need to feel loved and cared for. So maybe even just branch into that, and um, just starting off with that, so uh, you can just take that, take the floor now, as they say. Oh, uh, you watch a lot of videos. Um, 
I, I think there's a conflict in the sport that a lot of coaches were brought up um, by coaches who were very military-oriented and driven and used that as their teaching paradigm. And uh, military training and the military process is probably, for the most part, not fun. <laughs> Uh, the other side of sport is kids get out on the street, invent things, and play. Yeah. So sport probably sits somewhere between those two poles. And for long-term athlete development and long-term coach-athlete relationships, I've just found uh, if fun takes a back seat, those two entities suffer. Yeah. It's it's fun. It, it, the other thing that I think is because I was reading Franz's work at the time, he actually said that one of the key things to motor learning is to be motivated or have motivation. So he, he was like, and then your thing of being fun, and obviously fun and intrinsic motivation would be two things you would think would link up pretty well. So obviously it helps the organism to want to learn more and develop more because they feel they're having fun. Yeah, I mean, growing up on a farm, you know, milking cows every morning was, you know, not my idea of fun. Uh, that <laughs> my, that my, discipline stood me well. My father, my father would agree well, with that. But it's not something that, you know, I'd get on a plane and go fly someplace to milk cows. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying my, my father, he'd agree with you too. He, he grew up on a farm and moved to the city. He wasn't, <laughs> he wanted to get away from the cows. Um. But just finally, Dan, like in terms of pedagogy and, and coaching and teaching styles, and I've been reading a lot about this sort of athlete-centered approach versus a coach-centered approach. Again, I suppose it's because, particularly in the United States, well, it's in Ireland too, and in England as well, where I've been. Again, it's, it's probably just because the coaches who have a more coach-centered approach, that's how they were brought up, as you said, sort of military-esque kind of way of things. Can you maybe, like... In terms of, you know, you always seem to want more autonomy or give autonomy to your athletes and, you know, give them more responsibility and ownership of the process. And you seem to come across as more of a facilitator. Why do you think that's important? Well, again, I think that we've got to avoid the either-or discussion here. I think there's certain times and certain moments where it's coach-centered, and I think there are other times and moments where it needs to be athlete-centered. So I don't think it's as excuse me, I got people calling all over the place. Um, I, I don't think it's either or. I, I think it's what sphere of influence has the strongest pull at a given moment for a given situation and time. Yeah, it and it's actually uh, something I heard you did say. I don't know if it was on Martin's one or, or Rob Pace's podcast. You said that it depends on kind of where the athletes at and what they maybe more of. In fairness, yeah, I mean, if you're having school sports day with a bunch of six to twelve year olds, you better be coach centered. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Or you're gonna have chaos. Absolutely, Dan. Finally, for I, I let you go, maybe just uh, any parting advice, any listeners, and then what would be your your top resources for anyone listening. And with regards to resources, it can be anything, a book, a seminar, an individual. And what I really love here is that a lot of people give like, you know, books like that are far removed from say the training field, but you know, it could be a mindset book or a spiritual book or whatever. So what would be your top advice to all the coaches listening? And then what would be your top resources? Well, I, I think in this information overload period that we're in, uh, I would really recommend that people identify, you know, a small group of mentors, whether it's direct or indirect, and you follow them and peruse stuff that, you know, they're actively involved in. Uh, I think correspondingly uh, develop your network where it's very diverse. It's not just sport specific or even sport. Um, from early days, I've loved bookstores, and I seldom go into a bookstore with a plan or an objective. I just walk up and down aisles, and for some reason, the book I need to read just grabs me. So uh, I'm a big believer in diversity and other spheres of influence. So I would say 
grab four or five key mentors, and they may be in diverse spheres, and diversify your network. And uh, sidebar, a network really works if you give back. There are a lot of guys say they're in a network, and all they do is take, and I call those guys psychic vampires. That's absolutely fantastic advice. Dan, thank you so much for giving me an hour of your time. I really appreciate it, and uh, thanks for rescheduling as well. So, I, I, again, I just really appreciate your time, and hopefully when I get out to Altus now, we can spend some more time together and, uh, yeah, get into more deep conversations about life and the whole training process and anything else that comes up. Well, I look forward to it, and uh, I really respect what you're doing with the uh, podcast series, so happy to help. Thanks a million, Dan. Okay, so uh, I'll let you go, and when this is out, Dan, I'll send you the link, okay? All right, sounds good. See you, Dan. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. So, guys, what an absolutely great episode with uh, Coach Dan Fast. An absolute pleasure to have him on. So that's it for today. I'll talk to you soon, guys. Take care and stay strong. (laughs) 